Hi, I'm Justin Cosby, lead teaching pastor of Ransom Community Church. Thank you for streaming or downloading this sermon today. We pray that God would use this message to help you to delight in God and to create in you a deep passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want this video or audio to complement but not replace your active involvement in the life of a local church. If you're not connected to a gospel-centered church, please contact us at ransomedcommunitychurch.com. We would love to help you get plugged into a church that is making, maturing, and multiplying disciples of Jesus in a community near you. that we can partner with folks all over the world in making, maturing, multiplying disciples of Jesus. Today uh, is a very blessed day. We're going to have a wonderful treat. Uh, one of my good friends, Brother Zach Terry, will be preaching the Word of God to us today. Uh, Zach has pastored churches in Kentucky, in North Alabama, and now he's currently suffering for Jesus in uh, Ferdinand, Ferdinand Beach, Florida. You see that nice suntan he's got? He's really... Really, really struggling uh, as he leads, uh, he's the lead pastor of the First Baptist Church there. And Zach also played a huge role uh, in planning this church. The church where he was pastoring at the time was our, one of our sponsoring churches. They gave us a lot of equipment to get us started. Uh, did so many things to help me. He actually uh, hired me to uh, temporarily as a fill-in preacher for their student ministry, which was a huge blessing to my family and I at the time as we were trying to get the church plant started. Zach is a good friend, he is a faithful pastor, and as you will see, a gifted communicator who is committed to God's Word. So brother, we are thankful to have you with us this morning, and uh, would you guys join me in prayer for Zach and our time together as uh, he comes and opens the Scriptures with us. Father, we love you, and Lord, we thank you that we can gather here to behold you, to behold our God, Lord, everything in you, every attribute that you have calls out, deserves, and calls out for us to worship you as the one true God who deserves every aspect of our life. And so, Lord, I thank you that we can do that together. I thank you for giving us your word. I thank you for my brother, Zach Terry. Thank you for his faithfulness. Thank you for his family, Lord, his wife, Julie, and his beautiful children. God, thank you for using them, Lord, for for transforming him and using him as a trophy of your grace to display your glory to the world. And Lord, I pray that you would fill him now with your spirit, God, that you would um, proclaim the truth of your word through him and that we would experience the power of your spirit to transform us and make us more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, brother. If you have your Bible, open it up to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's where we're going to be at in just a moment. When um, we had Justin come over, we had an incredible student guy, and he was called to a different church. And then so Justin was beginning the plant of this church and getting everything together. And so I invited him to come over and, and do some teaching for our guys. And I sat in and I listened to him, was just absolutely blown away. And I thought, man, if he were a stock, I would buy some shares. I mean, he was an obviously gifted communicator. And so I was just blown away by what he could do. And I knew that the future of this church would be in good hands. It would be great uh, as God used him for his glory. This church is different from where I'm at. 
I, I came in, I told him, I said, I feel like I'm real bright today. I don't know, I'm coming, you know, we, we don't wear socks in Florida and it's just kind of different down there. Uh, your tone of your music's just different than ours. But, you know, it's okay, it's biblical, it's solid. Uh, everywhere you go on the planet, I love to hear how different people do church, how they do worship. Uh, traveling down to uh, South America, going to Honduras, Belize, Guatemala, anywhere we've been, Europe, Albania, anywhere that I've gone, church has been a little bit different, but I think that's really cool. And coming here today, even from, from what I understand, two services are a little different here. You've got kind of different crowd that comes to the early service than the late service. And so what I wanted to do is something that I picked up from one of my brothers in Africa. He said, when they stand up and preach, they always, no matter where you go, and Jonah might could even correct us on this if this isn't right everywhere, but it's my understanding that anywhere you go in the continent of Africa, that they will stand up and the pastor will look out over the congregation and they will always open the same way. They'll open the scriptures and then they'll say, I come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then everybody in there from the youngest child to the oldest senior adult will give like the best amen they can give. So I thought, you know, that might kind of break the ice for us a little bit this morning. We can try that, see how it goes. If you're, if you're not used to saying amen, this will give you permission. You can try it today. And we'll just, you know, I'm talking about really. I'm talking about like Pentecostal amen. You know what I mean? Like, like not, a, not a, a holy head nod, not a Baptist grunt. You know, I'm just talking about really I'm going to say that, then you're going to respond in turn and give me the best amen that you can give on cue when I say I come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you say amen. All right, got it? Same page? All right, I come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And then they preach for about three hours in Africa. So now we won't be any longer than an hour and a half this morning. We're going to talk about the gospel, real practical uh, how does the gospel affect change? You have a theory. You have a philosophy on how the gospel or, or how change occurs. Your parents had a theory on how change occurs. If you're a parent, you're using your theory, whether you've written it out and established it or not. You, you can tell what it is by the way you parent. You can tell what it is by the way you critique or criticize someone if you want to see change in your spouse, then you employ your theory for change. What brings about change? For example, some would say shame. Uh, my, my wife's family would employ shame as a motivation for change. So it might be a look from mom. It might be the pointing of a finger. It might be guilt, whatever, whatever comes to mind. But using shame or disappointment to motivate change in their daughter. It might be reward. Maybe if you have a child that, that you try to give them not the stick but the carrot and say, well, if you do this, you'll get rewarded. When you bring that into your faith, it's kind of a cost-benefit analysis. You you say, well, if I do good, if I live right, if I don't say what I shouldn't say and think what I shouldn't think, then God has to reward me. He has to bless me. But in fact, 
we have to be careful with that. The tendency is that it causes God to become like a genie in the bottle that is there to serve your ultimate idol rather than you there serving him. Maybe it's pride. Maybe, you know, growing up, my, son, my, my father would tell me, son, you know, you're better than that. You were raised better than that. Our family doesn't behave that way. And to instill sort of a pride in me to lead to life change. Another's mysticism. Just the idea that God will zap you and your behavior will change. The problem with mysticism is that it takes all the responsibility off of us. If God wants to change me, he must zap me. Ultimately, it makes sin God's problem and not yours. Now, there's some truth in each of these motivations, and there can be some usefulness in each one of the motivations, but none of those are the primary way that God seeks to change the heart of his followers. He changes us through the gospel. Now, when I say the gospel, I know, I know your pastor, and I know how you've been taught, and I know that you're aware of this, but, but don't assume that anybody else does necessarily. When I'm talking about the gospel, I'm talking about the, the particular story of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. That Jesus came to pay for our sins on the cross. The person and work of Jesus Christ for the redemption of sins is what I'm referring to. I'm not talking about a type of music. I'm not talking about a style. I'm talking about the work of Christ. He says there in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1, now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand. Now, think of that. What does that mean? To stand in a story. To take the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ and to stand in it. And then verse 2, and by which you are being saved. Right now, not by which you were saved back at Vacation Bible School. Or for me, I was saved at Kilby School parking lot, if y'all know where that's at. I was literally, I heard the gospel, really, really heard it. I'd heard it before all my life, but I really heard it listening to the radio in Kilby School parking lot. So I was saved, but then there's a sense in which I am being saved. So I'm being sanctified, I'm being made more like Jesus. So if I died in 1994, I would have went to heaven. But today, the gospel is still doing a work in my life. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So the gospel, that, that front door, getting into the kingdom, coming to faith in Christ... Realizing I'm a sinner, that God's done what he did through Jesus to save me, and my faith shifting from, from myself over to my Savior, trusting the gospel, then not just becoming the front door into the kingdom, but literally being presented by Paul as something that affects every fiber of every structure of the kingdom. It's the roof, it's the living room, it's the floor. It's the wall. It's everything around us. Now, what does that mean, and how does that work? In Colossians 2, verse 6, Paul writes, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, how did you receive him? 
I received him by hearing the gospel, chewing on it for a couple of weeks, and thinking, you know, I grew up in Trinity, Alabama, just outside of Decatur, in kind of a mountain preacher kind of church, um, hacking preachers, yelling, screaming preachers. Um, and it was always get saved or get right. Those were kind of the two messages you would hear depending on the Sunday. When I heard the gospel, Charles Stanley on the radio, he said, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our account, that through him we might know the righteousness of God. That's the first time I really, really heard it. I went back, and, and, and I remember he said, salvation is not about what you did down at the altar of your church. It's about what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago. I never heard that before. That may seem like old news to some of you, but to me, that was, that, was, that was brand new. It had always been about, if you came up and said at UNA and said, Zach, hey, are you going to go to heaven when you die? I would say, sure. How do you know? Because I walked the aisle of my church, and I said the sinner's prayer, and I got baptized. It's all about what I did. But he put the emphasis on what Jesus did. So I received Jesus by, by hearing the gospel repenting and believing the gospel and then Paul says just as you received him walk in him so so that was day one and now over 20 years later that's still how I'm supposed to walk in the reality of that story what does that mean how does that work Well, you'll see that the New Testament writers constantly point back to that story as a source of direction and as the power for life change. Now, there are a ton of examples. I'm not going to give you all of them. I'm just going to give you the top three. When the Bible comes to the key issues of life, money, marriage, and sex, and those three issues... Those three issues, in a sense, have nothing to do with the gospel. Like, if if we were thinking about, okay, we're going to do a conference on marriage. What does that have to do with the gospel? Well, according to Paul, everything. He says in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So, look to that story, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, to draw implications and instructions For how to be a good husband. Do you speak to her and does it echo the way he speaks to his bride? Do you serve her and does it reflect the way he serves his bride? Do you forgive her and does it reflect how he forgives the church? What about money? When it came to giving, we've got an incredibly generous church. it's, It's blown me away. We've got... CEOs of Fortune 500 companies that have settled on Amelia Island bought retirement property and they come to church. They're they're believers. But looking at how to motivate their giving, you look at how the world does it. How does the world motivate generosity? They show you pictures of starving children. And they they motivate you by guilt. And, And you don't want these children to die, so you should give. And that's not exactly wrong. That I'm not, I don't mean to beat that up or say it's just negative, but look at how Paul motivated generosity in the context of the church. He pointed to Jesus. He says in 2 Corinthians 9.15, Thanks be unto God for his inexpressible gift. So each time when it came to giving, he pointed back to the gift that God gave. 
the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave his first. He gave his best. He could not have given you any more than he gave you. And he says, now you give in response to that. In purity and sexuality, he says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13, to a, a city where sexual immorality was rampant, where prostitution was the norm. He says, the body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So the same God that raised the body of Jesus Christ is going to one day raise us. And he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? That hand, that's my hand. These are my eyes. But my body is somehow a member of the body of Jesus Christ. He draws our connection there to the person of Christ. And he says, shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. So before he says, you should be ashamed. You're better than that. We have rules. Before he goes to any of those things, he, he reminds you, of who you are, of whose you are, that you're a part of Jesus. So if you do that, you're bringing Jesus into that. He's saying, remember that. Remember who you are. Remember the story of Christ in every avenue, whether it's money, marriage, sexuality, in any of those things, church, business, being an employer, being an employee. Take the story of Christ and draw out implications for how it speaks into every area of your life. That is what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So as I look to the person and work of Jesus, as I see what he's accomplished on my behalf, see who he is as the, the scriptures are preached, as I study on my own, as I'm in group, whatever it might be, as I see Christ through the scriptures, it changes me from one degree of glory to the other. Now, the rest of this day is going to answer the question, how? How does he do that? Number one, the gospel balances our extremes. You'll find, if you're an exception, um, you're, you're, you're very, you, you are the exception. You're not like me. I've always had certain hang-ups when it comes to sin, before and after my conversion. You'll see that some people may struggle with sins of pride, and others may struggle with sins of fear or just being overly downcast Isaiah for example he he comes into an encounter with Jesus in the year that King Uzziah died I saw the Lord high and exalted and the train of his robe fills the temple the cherubim are shouting from one another holy 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 is the Lord God the whole earth is full of his glory and this man, Isaiah, who had every right, humanly speaking, to be proud, how does he respond? He falls on his face, and he says, Woe is me, I'm, undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. So his, he meets Jesus, and his pride is brought low. 
Jeremiah was a fearful man. He was timid. When he sees God, what does God say? Stop being afraid. Stop trembling. So an encounter with God offset, it balanced out his natural extremes. Both, it says in James 1 verse 9, it says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower he will pass away. Both tend toward one extreme or the other. One toward pity, the other toward pride. But notice how he applies the gospel differently. So to the the poor pitiful brother, he reminds him that you are poor in this world, but the king of glory came to save you so that one day you'll have a home in heaven. And then to the rich, proud brother, he says, focus on the fact that you were so sinful that the Son of God had to be slaughtered for your salvation. You see how the gospel counters, it balances the extremes of our heart. To the proud, he says, remember how sinful you were that, that Gabriel couldn't die for you. Justin couldn't die for you. The Pope couldn't die for you. It required the Prince of Glory. It required Jesus himself because you're such a sinner. And then to the one who's pitiful and downcast, he says, remember that you're so deeply loved that he was willing to leave glory to come die for you. To look at both of those things and let it balance out your natural tendencies. Get rid of self-pity and inferiority complex. Allow the gospel to produce a bold humility in your heart that says, if God would not keep back Jesus from me, then he would give all things that are needed to walk with God and to know him fully. He, he gave me his first and his best. He loves me deeply. But also a humility that says I'm so sinful that it required Jesus to be given. It destroys pride, but it also destroys pity, and it keeps a balance in our life. It destroys the pride without destroying the person. It balances our extremes. Secondly, it purifies our motives. When I first came to Christ, I remember reading the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm just being honest, I didn't think it was a very good sermon. I didn't get it. It felt like 50 thoughts from 50 different sermons all put together. Over time, I've learned that's kind of the way all of the sermons of the rabbis read. They're very difficult to read. One Presbyterian scholar, Dick Lucas, said, um, he said, the way to read a Hebrew sermon or a rabbinical sermon is to go to the end first and see what his conclusion is and then trace that back through the sermon. So if you do that with the Sermon on the Mount, the end of the Sermon on the Mount is there's two ways to live. There's a broad way and a narrow way. There's two roads, two paths. Well, if you take that idea of there's two ways and you trace that through the whole sermon, you see there's two ways to pray, there's two ways to give, there's two, and it makes more sense. But what he doesn't say is, well, you've got some people who pray and others who don't pray. Or you've got some that give, then you've got some that, that, that don't give. In Jesus' sermon, both prayed, both gave. But he says, look at how they pray, and look at how 
they give? What is their motive? The motivation to each one. One was simply a business transaction. If I do this, I will get that. The other is motivated because of who they know God to be. And they're responding to what they know of God. If your obedience comes from being convinced that to, the, to, to your very core that the gospel is true, then nothing can cause you to compromise it. You're responding to the gospel. It purifies your motives. You're not praying as a business transaction so that you get points at church or points with God. But you're responding to who you know him to be. And you can pray just as faithfully in secret when no one's looking. It balances our extremes. It purifies our motives or our reasons. And I think this has been the most powerful for me. It disrupts and replaces the rhythms of our life. So I learned early on, you never really break a habit. Like if you have a a habit or a hang-up and you're trying to break it, both theologians and psychologists will tell you you're wasting your time. No one breaks a habit. They can be, however, replaced. You can replace a habit, but you can't just stop one. In order to replace a habit, you have to offset it with a weightier habit. Romans 2.4 tells us that the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance or change. Have you ever struggled with that? Has that ever, I was raised, my dad growing up was very much an authoritarian. Uh, dad, dad was a great guy. He was a baby of 12 kids, big dude. He got really sick toward the end of his life, but he always told me, he said, son, he said, if you ever get too big for me to whip, I'll just hire somebody. You know, that was just the way my dad raised me. That was just how he, how he raised me. And, and when I read that verse early in my Christian life, and some of you guys I knew back then, and I would read that verse, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. It, it, am I the only one that re- reads that and goes, how does that work? I didn't, that made no sense to me. I mean, I could make an argument for it, but really and truly, I didn't get it. Thomas Chalmers, an old Puritan in, in a book you've probably heard quoted, it's the expulsive power of a new affection. He describes it this way. He says, it is seldom that any of our bad habits disappear by process of natural extinction. At least it is very seldom that this is done through reasoning or by force of mental determination. What cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed. One taste may give way to another. So a young man that idolizes pleasure may cease from seeking it because he discovers it drains him of his wealth. So his love for wealth drives out the idol of pleasure. Or perhaps his love for money is driven out by his worship of ideology or politics. He's willing to lose money for his new influence. Have you seen singers do that that they're singing bubblegum pop for all their career and then suddenly it's empty and they they realize that if they'll stand up for some political ideology um, that gives them more pleasure than the wealth they had before so they'll sacrifice their wealth for the new influence the old idol is simply conquered by a new one 
Well, when the gospel comes into our life, it comes as the weightiest of all realities, the greatest of all possibilities. One of the best ways you can know that you have been saved is that it moves from the concept into a reality. It moves from a theory, an idea, into a weighty reality in your life. And as it does so, that kind act of God sending his son to die for you, it expels the old idols. And the kindness of God leads you to repentance. In 1999, I've I've worked hard. I heard this illustration given through another preacher. And I've worked hard to find this movie. It's hard to find. So if you go back and check me on this, you're going to have some challenges. But the movie was in 99. It won a lot of awards. It was called The Three Seasons. It was shot in Vietnam. It's about a rickshaw rider. A rickshaw rider is one of these guys that pulls like a, a wagon behind him or a couple of guys on a, uh, that, that can sit on the rickshaw, and he will pull them like a horse, but he'll just you know, taxi them through town. And so Vietnam's filled with these rickshaw riders, and they're the lowest possible place on the food chain. Well, this one particular rickshaw rider, his name was Hai, H-A-I, and he had fallen in love with this beautiful Vietnamese woman named Lan, L-A-N. And he would always be at a certain place in the city at a certain time there in Hanoi and just outside of one of the nicest hotels in Hanoi. And he would see Lan come out of that hotel every day. Then he would give her a ride to her home. Well, as the story is told, he's absolutely smitten by her beauty and by her personality. And he makes sure that he gets that spot every day at that time when she comes out of the hotel to give her a ride back to her home. Eventually, he discovers that she's at the hotel because she's working. She's a prostitute. He gets to know her, and and she tells him of some of her ambitions in life, things that she would like to do. She says, you know, I, I love this hotel. It's a beautiful hotel, but I'm having to work, and it's what I do. It just keeps me from enjoying the, the, the pleasure of this place. And she said, one day, I would love to be able to afford to stay one night in that hotel and not have to work. Order room service and just sleep in. Well, one year, as the story goes, there was a big race, and it was, a, it was for all the rickshaw riders. And so they, they were going to race through the streets of Hanoi. To make a long story short, he wins. He gets all of this money. He makes just a huge fortune. Takes all of this money, and what do you think he does? He goes and buys a room at this most expensive hotel in Hanoi. He goes and finds Lan, and he says, I would like to purchase a night with you. The cinematography of it, it's beautiful. It's won all of these awards. And it shows them entering the room. It's this beautiful hotel. And you're kind of, you know, you're hearing the music play. And you're kind of thinking, okay, fast forward, you know. 
when we watch these movies, Julie holds the, the, the remote. It's like, okay, I can lose my job. Got to be careful here. So we're watching this thing play out, and it's kind of steamy, and you're kind of expecting things to start happening. And then he looks over at her, and he says, you remember what you told me about your desire to stay in this hotel and not have to work? She said, yes. He said, do you remember you said you would like to be able to spend the night and not be kicked out in the morning? You wanted to order room service and just enjoy it. She said, yes, I remember that. He said, sit on the bed. Then he just talks to her. Before you know it, she's drifted off to sleep. The morning comes. He's in the chair. She wakes up in the bed. He's got room service waiting on her. They enjoy a breakfast together. He takes her home. He doesn't lay a finger on her. Doesn't see her for many weeks after that night. He's always there at the hotel waiting for her. And finally, he gets worried and he gets up his nerve just to go visit her home. He goes to her home. Her sister's there, and, and she would not, Lan would not come out to see him. And he stays, and he's very concerned. And finally, she comes out. Lan comes out and meets with High, and she says, Get away from me. I don't even want to see you. He's like, Why? What, what have I done? Finally, she says, I can't do my job anymore, and it's your fault. I can't go back to that life. You ruined me. Lan was moved by the unconditional love of High that showed her she was truly an object of value. She was not just an object. She had inherent value within herself. She was mad. What else am I going to do? She said, I can't go back to that life. You loved me, and you ruined me. Someone had used the power of their love to honor her, to meet her in her brokenness, and it changed her. That's what happens when you really experience the gospel. That's the message that we get to share. Despite of our imperfections, and you know them, I hope you've lived long enough to know that they're common, that no one is without them. But despite of all that, you are ridiculously loved as a son or a daughter. You get to be real, and you get to be loved. And in that way, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Does it make sense? Have you experienced that? Have you ever been ruined by the gospel? We're going to go into a time of communion. It's the Lord's table. It's not Ransom's table. It's not Pastor Justin's table. It's the Lord's table.
So if you're a guest today and you're visiting, then you're invited if you are a follower of the Lord. If you've believed the gospel, if you've had an encounter with him where you've received and believed what he did on the cross was sufficient for you, then you're invited to take part of it. You're warned in scripture to to do this soberly, to search your heart and make sure that you're Full attention is on what you're about to do. It's very important. I think this is one of the reasons. You know, baptism, we're told to do one time after our conversion. We have people, we go to Israel about every year, and people are always like, will you baptize me in the Jordan River? And I'm like, nope. Not if you've already been baptized. If you haven't been baptized, I'll be glad to. But if you've already been baptized, Jesus was crucified, buried, and raised one time. Now, if, if, you didn't, if you came to Christ after your baptism, then you haven't really been baptized. You've got, you had a bath. Then you need to get your baptism in order and have your first real baptism. But baptism we're told to do one time to point back to the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. But in, but in communion, as often as you do this, this is something we're to do over and over and over again. Why? Because it points us back to the gospel. It reminds us of his broken body and his shed blood. And it reminds you that what he did in the past serves you in the present. He says, and do this until I come in the future. It's like a GPS for the soul. It gives you your bearings for life. Every time you do this, Remember to let the gospel change you. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you thanking you. I know, I know it doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter in the south, in the north. In Alabama, in Florida, every Christian, there's something about that awesome day, that moment in time when everything changed, when we gave our life to you, we trusted Jesus as our Savior. So what a beautiful moment. We could fill the day just telling those stories. But God forgive us for those times that we've seen the gospel as something that is relegated to that story. Enable us and teach us to feast on the benefits of the gospel today. And as Piper says, they are legion. Bless us now as we remember. In Jesus' name, amen.